you know, I, I don't say this lightly. I, mean, I think it's where God gave me the, the passion and commitment to, to spend the rest of my life addressing this issue in some, in some fashion. It's just incredible privilege. It's difficult. It's fun. I also know that there are employers and churches that require their employees as part of employment to sign a form of an NDA. It basically says if you leave working here, uh, you can't talk about anything that happened here. That's ridiculous and reprehensible. If you're being given that agreement at the beginning of your employment, go find a job elsewhere. Uh, that's a bad sign. Uh, and if it's a church, go somewhere else. That means it's a church that is obsessed with control and controlling the narrative. Run from that type of place. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. I'm so glad you're here this week. I am chatting with Boz Chavidjan. He's an attorney who represents many survivors who have been hurt in faith communities. He's also the founder of the organization Grace, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And I'm honored that he's also my lawyer. All right, here's my conversation with Boz Chavidjan. I would love it if you could tell my listeners who you are, what you're doing, what you've been up to. In case they don't know you. Wow, that's okay. That's very broad, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> my name is Boz. I'm sitting at my desk drinking a Dunkin' Donuts decaf coffee. Is that very good fancy. Enough? We have to we have to go beyond that. I am, uh, yeah. It's it's my full name is Bazil Chavijan, but so I don't uh, I don't make life difficult for other people or myself. I just go by Boz. Um, I am a practicing attorney uh, down in Florida. Prior to this, I was a law professor um, at uh, Liberty University School of Law, which could be a whole nother podcast. Yes. Prior to that, I was in private practice. Uh, in 2004, I started an organization called Grace, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. We can talk a little bit more about that. And then before that, so I'm sort of going backwards, I I started off as a as a prosecutor here in Central Florida. I was uh, I, I started it was the chief of the sexual crimes division, where I really really that was part of the, the season of my life where I, I I came face to face with this uh, these these horrific offenses, um, both with regard to children and adults. Um, and I think that's where you know I I don't say this lightly. I, mean, I think it's where God gave me the the passion and commitment to to spend the rest of my life addressing this issue in some in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I currently, as a practicing lawyer, I, I left sort of the comforts of teaching to jump back into practice because uh, one of the things I really became convinced I wanted to do is to is to represent abuse survivors in courtrooms across the country. And uh, and so uh, that's that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm it's it's just incredible privilege. It's difficult. It's fun. Um, all the above. I'm 53 years old and I, I feel like, okay, the, the last season of my professional life, which I hope will go on for quite a while, uh, this is this is where I wanted to land. And it's uh, just yeah. a, a huge privilege for me to, to do this line of uh, work, which again, we can talk about a little bit more later, because I think a lot of times people don't, they think of criminal cases, but a lot of people don't understand the civil aspect of, of these, these types of cases and, and what's 
what availabilities there might be to them if they're seeking some accountability. You founded uh, Grace, which is Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. You are on the board still, but you're doing more with your uh, private practice. So your your role there has changed just a little bit. But yeah. I'd love for you to explain, like, what does Grace do? How do they partner with people and churches? Yeah, it's a that's and maybe a great partner question. is the wrong word. Yeah, partner. In fact, I was gonna I was gonna in my answer I was going to to rephrase that. Yeah. Uh, maybe a gentle correction. You know, when I finished prosecuting, I just one of the things that hit me uh, is that there were so many cases that I had as a prosecutor that um, involved the church in some fashion, uh, the church. I mean, whether it was somebody who was abused at a church, whether somebody was abused outside the church and brought the issue to the attention of, of leadership. Amy, I can't tell you how many cases I had where the church over and over again just blew it in their response, either failing to protect, failing to respond, or both. So when I got out and went into private practice, I just remember thinking like, I always grew up, maybe I was naive, probably was, thinking that the church should be a refuge and should be the safest places for hurting and vulnerable people. And I was discovering in my, as a prosecutor that that was largely untrue. And so I thought, man, what can I do? Where can I learn what I've learned on the front lines as a frontline prosecutor? What can I do with that to help train and equip faith-based communities on, on these issues? And didn't really know what to do, except uh, I had met an, a, some wonderful people along the way as a prosecutor, all who had various, came from various disciplines, who all shared the same concerns. And so I reached out to them and long story short, in the summer of 2004, in a back cramped office of Diane Langberg's up in Philadelphia, uh, we came together. Uh, and I'll say on the side, as a hurricane was hitting my home in Florida. Wow. So I was, uh, you know, talking to my wife. Actually, one night we all went to a, a, a Phillies baseball game and I'm calling her and she's like, oh, that must be nice because we're in a hurricane. And so we started and we didn't really know what we knew that we wanted to educate the church. We don't know exactly how that looked, what that looked like, to be honest with you, back in 2004 unless you were in the Catholic world, in the Protestant world, nobody was really talking about this. They were mostly pointing their fingers at the Catholics. Yeah. So yeah, we would speak at some conferences, went some denominational, uh, we'd do, you know, sign up to do a little talk here at a denominational workshop and things like that. And anyway, very long story, very short is ultimately in the coming years, uh, the, the work of grace really expanded significantly, um, really to where it is today, which is, I would say sort of two primary areas of the work we do. One is the safeguarding initiative, which is where we work with churches and other faith-based organizations to go in and train and equip every demographic within that uh, community on issues related to abuse, not just child abuse and child sexual abuse, but as time goes on, we've expanded that to various other forms of abuse because so much abuse is uh, layered over and over again with each other. And then uh, we have our the other side, the institutional response side, where we go and uh, conduct independent investigations or assessments uh, of uh, situations where if somebody steps forward, let's say, and says, for example, you know, 15 years ago, I was abused by my youth pastor, and uh, this is the first time I'm saying anything about it. Oftentimes, yes, the youth pastor needs to be, in most cases, uh, if the statute of limitations is not expired, needs to be investigated and criminally charged. Yeah. But oftentimes... You know, what the prosecutors don't do is they don't really take a look at the institution and how did the institution either allow it, cover it up, all those types of things. And so that's what our independent assessments will go in and do. Uh, and then we'll write a, a report 
and one of our requirements is that the report goes not only to the institution, but also to uh, every reported victim that, that met with us in that particular uh, assessment. So it's transparent, because I believe transparency lends itself to a much greater degree of credibility. And then we do also in cultural assessments. So of an institution, we did one recently of a Christian college where they said, you know, we've got, we've got some sort of ongoing issues here with regard to sort of misogynistic behavior by some of the, the males. And, and we really want to get a handle on that and what we should do. And so we'll go in and do a institutional assessment that provides sort of an assessment of the culture and then make recommendations as to what they might want to do to, to uh, transform that. But those are the, I mean, I could go on and on about grace, but those are the two, two big areas that, that grace is, is involved with. And yeah, you're right. I started it. I was the part-time executive director until um, December, 2020. It became increasingly clear to me as we had a full-time staff and all of that, that I, they needed a full-time director. And, and uh, I just didn't feel like I was the person best equipped for that. And we, uh, in God's kindness, found current director, Pete Singer, who is doing an amazing job and who's a dear friend of mine. And it's a really I'll just say this and be quiet. I think it's just such a unique relationship because a lot of times you have organizations where, you know, some the founder steps aside and the the new person comes in and they don't really feel like they're in charge. There's sort of a insecurity because especially if the founder's still on the board. Yes. And um and that's just been so not the case with Pete. He's become a dear friend. It's been really wonderful. He's the right person for this position, and I couldn't be more thrilled that that he's on board and that I get to work with him as a board member. I did not realize that Diane, Dr. Diane Langberg was part of your origin story of Grace. So that's awesome. In my mind, I'm imagining a Marvel-style movie poster with Dr. Langberg and Boz on it in some way. Surely one of my listeners could make something like this, right? That's how I met her. I I met uh, Diane when we were thinking about putting together a board and somebody mentioned this person named Diane Langberg, to be honest, I don't know if she knows this. I'd never heard of her before. This was back in 2004 or earlier. And uh, man, that she sure changed my life. What a, what an amazing human being. So many people that I have talked to or listened to this podcast have could say the same thing. They have watched her videos. They have read her books. They have been blown away by she could preach. She doesn't call herself a preacher, but I listened to her at the Caring Well conference on um, her address and I was blown away. Now it was an SBC thing, so we can't say that she was preaching, right? But in my heart, she was preaching. Oh, I, I like to think she was preaching. Just that, that gave me a little bit of a smile. I'll have a link in the show notes to the address that Dr. Langberg gave at the Caring Well conference, as well as to the address from Boz. Boz started his address by talking about his discomfort with some of the aspects of the conference, as well as the lanyard that he had been given that had sponsors' names on it. One of my questions I wrote down, what actually did you do with your Caring Well lanyard, Boz? (laughs) I probably (laughs) threw it in the trash as soon as I walked out. I Um, remember you saying, you know, just your, that in, in your address saying how conflicting that was for you. Glad to be able to address the problem, but how hard it is that tension in like, are we creating an industry around this? Yeah. Are we actually looking at the right things here? So 
I know that there is still that tension in the survivor world of how to navigate that. I went back and forth on whether to, to go to that at all. And I really struggled. I, I was like, why am I going to go to this? Um, I'm going to be speaking to a group of, and again, some of it was just being judgmental, but like a, a group of people like, why, why is the Southern, why is the SBC qualified to put on like this conference? Like gross, like, no, you need to be going to conferences not putting one on. So I really wrestled with that. But at the same time, I knew that there were individuals within the um, ERLC, yeah. at least at that time, that I think really cared. And there are things that I could say that they couldn't, mm -hmm. and which a few of them afterwards came up to me and thanked me. They said, I, I could never have said that, but you needed to, and I'm glad you did. Yeah, That was encouraging. And then, you know, the, the big one for me was, uh, the two big things for me was, A, I want to be able to say anything I want. So nobody's going to look at my outline talk anything beforehand and they agreed to that and then i just wanted to make sure i had a drink afterwards so which i did i i went with uh, a couple friends to the to the hotel bar and it was sort of funny because i mean everybody's walking out and i had my much needed drink that mm -hmm. night it was an honor for me to be because I, I you know amy i felt like with regard to that and, and that's all i'll say about this is is there were a lot of people who couldn't make that conference there are yeah. a lot of people who couldn't make it either because financially or they just didn't want to there were a lot of voices that were left out and you know I, I can't speak for them but I wanted to speak to them and and remind them largely the people in the room is are not why I'm doing what I'm doing it's, mm -hmm. it's the people who who are at home um yeah. who can't pay money to a conference can't fly to Dallas I can't you know they're just and they feel voiceless and and so it was a privilege for me to do it to do it for those reasons and that's what ultimately convinced me like okay go but i do think i left literally the first thing the next morning i was you know it wasn't going to be this you know yeah. networking opportunity to go network yeah. which just all grosses me out it's the people that aren't comfortable in those rooms mm -hmm. that you are needed for um i want to i want to chase that down just a little bit okay there are people that are listening to this and i was wondering like what would you say to people to just encourage them that feel ostracized and like they're a threat in a faith community now because they really care about speaking up about injustice either they've seen it personally it's happened to them something something painful has happened to them or they just care about it i have seen and i wish this isn't the case there is this movement and i'm seeing a lot on social media from pastors and i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in some cases it's well-intentioned but in other cases, it feels really defensive mm -hmm. writing articles and saying, you know, things aren't really that bad in the church. It's not as bad as everybody says it is. What would you say to people that have kind of felt pushed out and yeah. not welcome? Yeah, I first say, if it's not that bad, then why are so many people leaving? You can ignore that reality, but it's a reality. I think what I would share with people is I know how important to so many people church community is. It was for me for a very long time, especially if you grow up, up in that world. It's your social community. It's where you spend most of your time. It's where most of your longest term, uh, longest term friendships exist. Uh, it's where people uh, are a part of who help maybe watch your kids grow up and maybe help raise your kids. I mean, it's a we can't underestimate the power of community. And for for many, especially evangelical Christians, church has played that role. And so it's really devastating when either somebody steps forward because they were they were victimized or when somebody steps forward to speak on behalf of those who've been victimized or any other injustices and they get on a good day the cold shoulder from 
church leadership. And if they keep stepping forward and saying, okay, I want to be consistent, they go from getting sort of the cold shoulder to uh, you're now becoming part of the problem. And so much of the world I grew up in, and again, I didn't grow up in fundamentalism at all. I, I grew up in a, you know, definitely a conservative evangelical home, but so much of it is so dualistic. It's us versus them. You know, we heard that growing up about the culture wars. It's us versus them. Uh, you heard that in, you know, then that bled over into politics and in all aspects of life. And so when you're so used to being part of the us, and then you make some, you step forward to, to either disclose your own abuse or advocate for others, and you begin over time, sometimes it's very quickly, become viewed as part of them, that is devastating to people because they've lost the very core community that has been such a, a part of their DNA. Amy, I see many people who just suck it up and, and stay in it because they can't lose that community. Sometimes it's complicated. They got kids. They get kids who are involved in the in the community. They don't want to they don't want to harm their kids or, or have their kids be the uh, feel the consequences of this. So they stay. Sometimes they just shut up and be quiet and get back in line because they value and need that community. And sometimes they're kicked out and sometimes they walk out. You know, I can't tell you how many of my clients. It's probably most of them who were part of a church community and loved it. And when they brought forth disclosure that either themselves or their children were abused within a very short period of time, found themselves outside of community to the point where I had one client tell me we were part of this church for years and years. They were our family, our church family. And when we disclosed our child's abuse um, and the way they responded was so bad that, that we eventually felt like we had no alternative, but to, but to leave to the point now, if she sees somebody in the grocery store who she might've, known really well at that church, went to small group together, went to Sunday school, worship, families got together. That person, she remembered one particular incident where that where the person looked at her, caught her eye contact, turned around and walked the other way. And so there's a tremendous loneliness, you know, betrayal, loneliness, uh, questioning yourself, like, wait a minute, if, you know, why is the the church, why do I feel like the church is, is I'm one of them now instead of us? Maybe am I doing something wrong? Maybe God's not really with me on this. Maybe I've made a mistake. And so I guess I would say number one is you're not alone. I can tell you that. Now that doesn't necessarily make you feel better, but you're not alone. And my guess is there are people probably even in your geographic area that are suffering something very similar. And the key is how do we connect and find those people? Because I think that, and you're seeing more and more as more people walk away from more traditional church um, you're going to you're going to run into those people and developing those types of relationships outside the constructs of a, a particular church. And, you know, and now the other thing I would tell other people is and I say this all the time is like, just remember, church is not a prison cell. You can leave. And I know it's painful and difficult, but sometimes that's what you have to do, because if they're not going to listen to you and they don't value your your words and your concerns and your own life experiences and your trauma then it's not a place you should be at. It's a That's a very unhealthy, toxic community. And sometimes you just have to leave, but it's always much easier to leave when you when you have support than when you're alone. And so I guess it's all very tragic. Why are the families of sexual abuse victims, not the perpetrators, the victims, why do I run into countless numbers of them who 
the ultimate consequence of them coming forward has been being ostracized by the very community that they thought would be their greatest advocate. How does that even reflect Jesus? I mean, there's no Jesus there. So just because you call yourself a church, in my opinion, doesn't make you one. Hmm. I haven't experienced sexual abuse, but, you know, being somebody that's spoken up about injustice, right, you know, somebody really powerful and connected in my community, you know, if the evangelical industrial complex exists, it, it exists in my neighborhood. Sure. <laughs> it is a particularly lonely feeling to know that thousands of your neighbors see you as a threat in some way. You know, again, most of us growing up in evangelicalism heard, you know, it was just part of the culture, whether it's from the pulpit or in other teachings about the evils of the world and how the world is trying to destroy the church and how, you know, you send your kids to college and they're going to destroy their minds. And I mean, it was, again, it was them. The them is 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 out to destroy Jesus and his mm -hmm. church. And when you find yourself now being labeled as them, whether you agree with it or not, it has a it has a profound impact. This is one of those comments about which we could probably do an entire episode. So many of my listeners will resonate with this. Finding yourself in the them category is profoundly disorienting and heartbreaking. It's interesting to me that instead of that introspection that should happen when, when you know there's accountability that is brought that says, oh yeah, we do believe that everyone is a sinner. And that applies to leaders of organizations. And that applies to organizational structures that are built by imperfect people, that the first, like the default response would not be to think, oh, we have some learning to do or something we need to change, but to be, this must be an attack from Satan. Yeah. Yeah. We, we act horribly. And when we're called on it and criticized for it, especially publicly, it now becomes an unfair attack uh, by Satan, unfair attack because of our faith. We're being persecuted. I mean, it's just, that's just ridiculous, but it's the easy narrative to embrace. And sadly, too many people in churches will run to embrace that because they all want to be part of the us. Nobody wants to be part of the them. Mm -hmm. And so that narrative allows me to, to confirm the fact that I am part of us. Mm -hmm. And if I'm part of us, then I am I'm God's child and I'm protected and loved by him. And I don't want to do anything that becomes where I'm part of them. And it's just very manipulative and destructive and judgmental and hateful and controlling. Unless people in the in churches say enough. And I think that's what they're in many ways they're doing by leaving. They're just saying, I, I don't choose I choose not to voluntarily place myself in this type of environment. Doesn't mean I'm not a I don't love Jesus. You know, a lot of them leave and they say, I'm done with the whole Christianity thing. And I get it. I truly get that. But a lot of them just, they're rethinking everything. And then even the rethinking, they get criticized for Like, you know, the whole term of, you know, these buzz terms like deconstruction, they, they can't even, they can't even think on their own. They can't even engage in critical thought before leaders are criticizing that. Yeah. Because when you think on your own and engage in critical thought, uh, you might take away a little bit of power from the Christian leader and they don't like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I read somewhere just the other day that that uh, I think it was Pete Enns who said uh, this deconstruction has been going on for hundreds of hundreds of years. What do you think Martin Luther was doing? So it's just it, it, it is a lot to do with power. I don't know if you saw this, but a pretty well-known 
pastor in the Dallas area on social media, there was a clip of a sermon that was shared pretty widely. And he said that there very angrily, the disciples didn't give up on Jesus because of Judas. And then he said, you know what? Nobody really talks about sheep bite. You know, everybody's talking about how, you know, people are getting hurt by the church, but nobody's talking about sheep bite. What is your response to that? Well, if it's the person I'm thinking of, then maybe he needs to listen to his own words because Mm -hmm. I know people who have not been sheep bit, but have been shepherd bit over and over again. So they're bloody and then they walk away and you're now trying to explain that away instead of being humble and going, you know what, what can I learn from this? How can I grieve over it? How can I practice lament? How can I maybe give up some power and authority that I've accumulated? And it's just, it's, it's all about a preservation of, of, of power and influence. And especially, and it happens on all levels of churches, in my opinion. I mean, it doesn't happen. And let me just say this. I mean, I don't, I'm not here to say all pastors and churches are, are terrible places at all. Some of my dearest, dearest friends are, are pastors. Yeah. Um, and they're imperfect, as we all are. But this whole notion where you we, we've created, especially in, the, in, in this country, I mean, it's in other places too, where these these pastors become these superstars and they have their little kingdom. They're living lives that 99% of their congregation couldn't even remotely afford to live. And when they begin to maybe, and, and pretty soon they, there's zero accountability because everybody's coming to hear the pastor and we don't without the pastor, the church and all the money that comes in and all the people they pay can be uh, called into, into question. So we don't want to do anything that upsets the pastor. The pastor becomes uh, zero accountability. The pastor is in charge of appointing all the other leaders in the church that are all yes, man. It sounds a lot like what happens, what I see in, in, uh, in Russia today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then they get upset if people question them or question their teachings. Yeah. And I'm just like, I think, what if we created? I mean, I was with a friend of mine about a month ago in New York City, one of my dearest friends, and, and we decided to go to his church. He lives in the Lower East Side, just, goes to this little Greek Orthodox church. So I said, yeah, let's, I, I'll go with you Sunday morning. So we went to church Sunday morning, and, and I only understood about a third of it because most of it was in Greek, and it was a very long, very long. We, we came in an hour into it and left. I think there's still an hour going on. So I, having said all that, but here's the thing. I walked out and, and the, the priest gave a, what I would call a homily, which was 10 minutes. Really good. And I remember thinking, wow, like that service had really nothing to do with the priest or his ability to communicate or his, pers- his, his charismatic personality. In fact, the service was all about Jesus and it culminated didn't the service did not culminate with a 30 to 40 minute sermon by this one man standing up there being speaking uninterruptedly for 40 minutes, if you're lucky, but it actually culminated with the Eucharist, which is um, communion. It culminated with Jesus. And that same night I was on, I I turned on Facebook and I looked in somebody and they said, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this, but they said, I can't wait. Such and such is coming to our church next week. They'll be preached. Oh, you make sure you all come and attend. And I remember just thinking, such a dichotomy to what I had experienced that morning. And I thought, you know, the church is, is messy. And even in the you know, Orthodox world is messy. I, I get all that. But I'm saying just the format, I thought, 
man, when's the last time you heard of a rock star Greek Orthodox priest <laughs> or even a Catholic priest? I mean, yeah. we have created these systems in Protestant evangelicalism that in many ways, and I don't say this lightly, have created these monsters mm -hmm. that we call pastors that get to tell us what to believe, what we don't believe. And if we disagree with them on theology or quite frankly, anything else, we are now part of the them. Mm -hmm. And there's something wrong with that because that's not my, my understanding of who Jesus was and is. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling, and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. If I would have kept making only the minimum payments on my credit cards, my debt would have taken me 47 years to pay off. These are real National Debt Relief customers. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get out of debt by myself. Credit card, medical, or personal loan debt? National Debt Relief negotiates with your creditors to reduce what you owe. National Debt Relief got me out of debt? You could be debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months. Visit NationalDebtRelief.com to learn more and get started. NationalDebtRelief.com. Now back to the show. And, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Caitlin Beatty, who just wrote celebrities for Jesus, that's coming out soon. I got to read an advanced copy. Um, she has a question for you. She had posted it on Twitter. She wanted to now talk about NDAs, the use of NDAs in churches yeah. and Christian organizations. And I, there was a thread probably from maybe a year ago. I know a pastor had asked you, Hey, is there any good use for this? Like, is there, is there a middle ground where NDAs are okay? What have you seen in the use of NDAs? And she had responded with me asking, you know, I'm interviewing Boz. What are your thoughts on NDAs? Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about what an NDA is. Because okay. I think it's, it's really, I find a lot of times people have a misunderstanding of an NDA. So in general, in the legal world, a non-disclosure agreement, it's usually a non-disclosure provision within some type of settlement agreement. And when we say non-disclosure, there's a spectrum on the far end of the spectrum is you can't talk in, in exchange for this settlement agreement. So in exchange for this amount of money, you're going to sign a release that says you're going to release us from further liability and you're going to sign this agreement. And part of that agreement has this, this non-disclosure provision and the, and the extreme non-disclosure provision says uh, you can't talk about anything related to this lawsuit to anybody, unless it's your lawyer, priest, or maybe a therapist. And if you do, you have breached this agreement and we can either A, sue you for breaching the agreement or what they try to do, which I don't allow, is they'll stick in what's called a liquidated damages provision, which says, if you do violate this, 
you are agreeing upfront that if you violate this, you will pay us X amount of dollars. Amy, the, 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 the scary thing about this is there's no, there's no ending date for that. Yeah. We've seen uh, that yeah. with the Ramsey solutions and, yes, you know, yep. non-disclosure paperwork that they hand and they say, you know, we can get the money back from you plus damages. Yep. In just about all of my settlements, we will not agree to any type of NDA with regard like that. But just about every settlement, we agree that the, the terms of the settlement agreement are confidential. Okay. The amount of money paid, the, the language that's inside the settlement agreement is, is private. And that's often done for the benefit of my clients as well. Mm-hmm. What I will do sometimes in, in agreements where they say, no, they can't talk about it. And ultimately, it's the client's choice. I, I do not dictate that for the client. The client has to make that choice. Obviously, most of them don't ever want to sign anything. But there are occasions where the client might say, well, there's, there might be a benefit if neither of us talk about it. Um, I might be open to that. And I'll, I'll, we'll talk about the benefits and drawbacks of that. Or I did one uh, last year where my client said, listen, I want to share my story to whomever I want to. I don't really care to name the church in my story because that's not, my story is really not about that. It's about what happened to me and how a church and how the faith community responded. And so they said, you know, I'll agree not to mention the church. I don't really care because that's not part of my story. And if they want to do that, that's, that's completely their, their prerogative to do. And, and I'm not going to stand in the way of that. Um, what I won't do now is allow people to sign these NDAs uh, where, like we just said, you can't talk about any of this forever and ever and ever. And uh, I just, I let them know no amount of money is worth that. And the reality in my experience, at least in the legal field, is ever since Harvey Weinstein's, you know, when he was exposed and, and so many of those victims were had been silenced for years because of these very strict multi-page NDAs, NDAs have really gotten a bad rap, for, and I'm happy about that. It used to be I might have to really spend time arguing with opposing counsel that we're not going to do an NDA. And sometimes they would agree to it. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes we'd have to walk away from the agreement because of the NDA. That seldom happens now because even the institution doesn't want to be accused publicly that they required this person to sign an NDA because then everybody will give them hell. Now, one other thing I'll say about that, that's in the legal side. Yeah. I also know that there are employers and churches that require their employees as part of employment to sign a form of an NDA, but basically it says, if you leave working here, uh, you can't talk about anything that happened here, or you have to get our approval or permission to talk about that. That's ridiculous and reprehensible. If that's, if that, if you're getting, if you're being given that agreement at the beginning of your employment, go find a job elsewhere. Uh, that's a bad sign. Uh, and if it's a church, go somewhere else. That means it's a church that is obsessed with control and controlling the narrative, and that's why they want to shut you up, run from that type of place, because it's probably a very unhealthy environment. So how about, though, you've already started attending a church, working at a church or a Christian organization, you haven't signed any confidentiality thing. Um, Or covenant. Yeah, or or some sort of membership covenant. But uh, something happens. You've been working at a Christian organization or a Christian or a church and your leader comes up to you and says, your job is over. And, you know, we just want you to sign this piece of paper here. And it says, you know, you can never say anything about 
why you left. You can never say anything negative about the organization or the church or your agents on your behalf. (laughs) They can't either. There's no expiration on this. And you don't get any severance unless you sign it. And you had no notice ahead of time that this was coming. Yeah. Tell me about your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I would I, I I say this. Each situation is different and unique. I start with that. Yes. I can't impose my understanding or situation upon somebody else. So, for example, if somebody is going, oh, my goodness, I've got three or four kids and I've got bills coming due and uh, I, I'm panicking. I just told, I was told I was going to lose my job. I yeah. need this money because I don't know what's going to happen if I don't. And they get panicked and understandably. So, you know, it's easy for me to go, never sign that. Well, I'm not living their life. Yes, um, yes. What I would say is don't sign anything until you speak to an experienced attorney who can speak on your behalf with the company mm-hmm. and try to negotiate something Um, What if they say, you know, the offer's good right now, but if you leave the room, you pick up your phone, it's gone. Again, I can say what I would do would be like, goodbye. As a side note, if you have signed something or have been offered some sort of legal agreement to sign in relation to leaving, and you'd like a lawyer to look it over, this is something that Boz does in his private practice. And it's not always faith-based employers. He, He does a bit of employment law as well. And I'll leave a link in the show notes regarding this. If you were speaking to somebody that was leading, you know, working in HR in a faith-based organization, church, what would you say to them if you found out they were doing that sort of thing or considering it? Stop it. Don't even do it. Is there any reason why, any justification for why they would do that? No, I mean, I, I can see in a situation where, where let's say you have somebody working in a very sensitive position, whether through therapy or finances or things like that, and they leave and you go, listen, I, I don't want you to, we don't want you to go disclose to the world uh, about the finances of the church. Um, mm-hmm. No, quite frankly, it should be, it should be um, transparent, but yeah. I could understand maybe the thought process on that, or somebody is leaving the church who's on staff and they are going to go open up another church down the street and they want to pluck and pick out different employees to go work for them. Uh, I could understand maybe the, 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 the initial church saying, well, if you want a severance, you're going to have to agree to a non-solicitation clause and things like that. Yeah. Um, maybe, but I know, it's so weird. It sounds so businessy, right? It like, is. It, it's it's well, because it is a business and that's here's the, the non-compete. You can't yeah. win people for Jesus in this neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I don't, those non-competes probably would in most jurisdictions wouldn't be, wouldn't be uh, upheld yeah. uh, or enforced, but a lot of non-competes are not enforceable. Um, but the problem is you have to find a lawyer and pay money to even find that out. Yeah. And and that's the same good thing goes with what we call non-disparagement clauses. A non-disparagement clause is basically you can't say anything ugly about us. Yeah. Well, what in the world does that mean, non-disparagement? Like, well, what, even if it's true to you, may, yeah, it's, it has nothing to do with truth. It's just it's yeah. just ugly, something ugly. Those are all methods and manners of trying to control. And I guess I guess what I would tell clients and I, I do a lot of employment law as well is when you leave. You want to be able to cut all the cords that you can, if not all of them. You don't want any strings attached to this relationship. And 
any agreement that involves strings attached, I can tell you, I can guarantee you is not going to bode well for you in the yeah. future. If you can get by without taking that severance, because that's the only carrot that they have to put in front of you to get you to sign that. If you can get by, and the reality is I'm going to be willing to say you will get by. Yeah. And that's going to be a short-term hurdle, and it's going to be difficult. But I can tell you, if you sign this agreement, the long-term impact is going to be far more devastating and difficult than this short-term hurdle of income, a lack of income. Yeah. And um, but but that's where yeah. And if you're being pressured to sign it before you even leave a room, that's a telltale sign you don't sign it. Do you have to like? I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, and I understand if you don't. If you're leaving, do you have to go to an exit interview? And do you have to sign anything to get? Do you have to sign an agreement to get your money you've already earned? Or can, like, I would think you probably don't have to sign. You don't anything. have to sign anything. Anything. No. In fact, it's federal law that they have to provide you with the COBRA notice. So if um, somebody hands you a piece of paper and says, here's just a paper, we just need you to sign it. No. <laughs> this is just to, just, to, just to say, you know, your address is the same. Yeah. You don't actually have to sign it. No, if you're leaving, unless you're wanting to get a severance, that, like I said, the severance is the only carrot that they can put in front of you to sign it. Um, then, you know, in, in most jurisdictions, you don't, it's, it's employment at will is just that. That means they can fire you at will. They don't have to sign anything when they fire you and you can walk away and leave at will and you don't have to sign anything. I think it's fascinating that Boz mentions that most people who sign something, taking away their rights to speak about anything, even true things that might reflect poorly on their former employer, that those who sign those rights away most often regret it. I also wanted to emphasize again, if you are leaving an organization or a church or an employer and they give you any paperwork to sign at all, you don't have to sign anything. It's not required. Even if they just push an innocent looking paper in front of you and say, we just need you to sign here to verify that your address has not changed. You don't need to sign that. Ask to take all the paperwork home with you or have them email you the paperwork this might feel awkward, but a healthy organization will not question your request to take that paperwork home with you. Yeah. Uh, Brad Sargent, um, he's pretty active on social media and he had a question for you. Uh, he wanted to know that he says we're five years out from, you know, the hashtag me too and church Too. church Too is like 2017. He said, how have these social movements changed the big picture of survivors advocacy for better or worse. And where are we headed? Like, do you see any signs? Mm, that's, of, a, that's a great question. Uh, is it waning? What's happening? I think that initially me too and church too. So, so let's just talk about church too for a moment was, was eye opening for a lot of people. Um, there were a lot of people who posted church too or me too stories that I think personalized this, this epidemic, this horrible epidemic in our culture that where people were reading hashtags from family members, coworkers, friends, and, and it, it really made it personal. And I think that was a really, that was a really powerful thing. And I think it did open up minds and eyes and, and begin to shift uh, the discussion. I mean, the, the number of people that have felt empowered to step forward about both adult and childhood 
sexual abuse inside and outside the church has has significantly increased. And so that's all a good thing. And I think that that in a large part still exists. What I see now, though, in pockets of Christianity, especially in pockets of more conservative evangelicalism, is this sort of growing backlash, like very similar to the quote you read earlier from the the pastor, where we're not going to say, you know, I I remember seeing somewhere, I don't spend too much time on, on social media, but I remember seeing something just the other day where somebody was talking about, you know, uh, what was a victim sainthood. Hmm. And, you know, it was like, you know, basically just because you call yourself a victim, now you're supposed to be a saint and you can do no wrong. And I, I think there's a underlying, underlying tenant in many of our more conservative churches of that, you know, these would be the same churches, quite frankly, that have embraced Christian nationalism and Trump and all the ugliness that brings to, to the faith. But it is that it's this, you know, and, and let's, what about the young men that are being falsely accused? And, you know, we need to start standing up for them too, because they're, you know, they're the leaders of our churches and they've been maligned. And, and these, these mostly these women who, quite frankly, in a lot of these environments devalued to begin with, now are feeling a little bit more empowered to, to, to not, they won't say sexual abuse is okay. They won't say that, at least yet. What they will say is, we think that much to do is being made about something much less and people are getting far more attention than they should about this. And it's just exaggerated and, and all of that stuff, because we live in a day and age where, where truth is not really relevant anymore, in, even inside the church. And, and I think that's, that is challenging for survivors. And what I don't know in the long run is, will that impact how, and when survivors step forward in these faith communities, is it, are they going to, are they going to stop stepping forward? Mm-hmm. Are they going to just go back and suffer in silence like they did for a long time? I don't think it'll ever go back to completely that because I think that there are so many communities out there that, that are embracing of survivors and, and want to walk with them. But yeah, you're seeing a little bit of a full circle in certain pockets um, that are again, consistent with the times we live in sadly. And that troubles me. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think it's happening to me too as well. I see that happening yeah. more in the secular world. The, the big criticism I heard for a long time, and I still hear now is, is okay, just because you have a me too story means I can't push back at all. And I just have to do, and I, I'm like, no, I, nobody ever said that. What we're saying is that for decades, if not generations, these experiences have been kept quiet for a litany of reasons. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people for the first time, oftentimes are feeling empowered to actually step slowly out forward to disclose mm-hmm. and report. We should be celebrating that. And and our first response shouldn't be skepticism or, oh boy, here's another victim. Our first response should be welcoming and celebrating and advocating for. Now, if something comes down the pike where you learn basically in a situation that there's something a miss with the disclosure or that it's, it's truly is just not true. Nobody's saying that you just blindly embrace it. And uh, that's why we, one of the things grace does is independent investigations. Yeah. That's why you get a third party into, to investigate these things. But the key is that you embrace it and bring that third party in and not just shut it down. So I think there's some challenging days ahead. I think the picture is 
is definitely brighter today than it was 10 years ago, but I don't know what it looks like five years from now. That reminds me, I've, I've wanted to ask you this question for a while. It ha- relates to the investigation process. Now, I know Grace has worked with this particular church, but they have been open and said that they have been working with Grace and it's Tate's Creek Presbyterian in Kentucky. And I know you can't speak to a specific um, instance, but they had disclosed that there were some allegations against somebody high profile. And there was quite a bit of, you know, flurry online when that was, you know, when people were, when they were saying, hey, we want to hear from people if they have stories to tell. But I also heard pushback from some people saying, why are we sharing somebody's name like this? Isn't this ruining somebody's life? Possibly we don't know all the details. So while I know you can't speak to that particular situation. Can you tell me like what goes into that process before like a church would say, would specifically name a person that has had allegations against them so that they can gather information? Do they, is there any vetting that happens beforehand or does somebody, can someone just come in and say, this person hurt me. And the next day, like the pastor sends out a blast and says, Hey everybody. Yeah. I would say my immediate general response is that seldom ever happens. It's usually the other end of the spectrum uh, where we hold on to the identity as long as we can, even while we are getting information that is truly concerning because we don't know all the details. And that's one thing I hear all the time of when people want somebody to not comment on it, or not talk about it, or not form an opinion. It's, we don't know all the details. Uh, there's another step, sure there's another side. And that's an, that's sort of code language with for just don't talk about it. And so to answer your question, I, first of all, that's a, that's a decision each church has to make. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself as a church leader, what's your what's one of your most primary responsibilities? And how do we carry out that responsibility in light of this information? And so I would argue that one of the primary responsibility of leadership is protection of vulnerable people within your, your faith community. And, and so if, if disclosing the identity of the person who's been accused furthers that responsibility, then, then do it. If you come to the conclusion that it doesn't, then you need to really wrestle with why aren't you disclosing it? Now, oftentimes these cases are initial initiated by law enforcement investigations. Somebody reports it because it's a crime and, you know, law enforcement will investigate. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll tell people, listen, law enforcement is investigating and you as a church should not step in the way of that investigation. So you could, you need to have ongoing communications with law enforcement because if law enforcement says, listen, we don't want you to name him right now. We're in the middle of an investigation. We're about to do a controlled phone call and he, where he might confess to everything. But if you name him, he's going to, he's going to shut down. Then you hold off. Now that's, that can create a tension because you go, well, yeah, but how long do we hold off? Cause I have a duty to put my, my, the, the people in this community on notice that there could be some, some danger. And what steps can I take short of identifying him, removing him, you know, telling him not to come to the, the church, telling him not to, you know, those types of things. I think with re- regard to grace, um, you know, we usually, we, the standard, the standard, and now there's some exceptions, but the standard uh, protocol for us is to inform the, the pastor that when we initiate and start an investigation, 
that you need to inform the church about the investigation and you need to inform the church of the name of the, the uh, reported offender because I can't do my job as somebody who's investigating this. Uh, if A, nobody in the church knows that I'm there to investigate and B, um, in fact, I was just telling somebody yesterday, uh, uh, an insurance rep that I was arguing with about a case. Um, you know, she said, well, nobody else has stepped forward to other than your client to disclose that this person hurt them. And I said, well, let's go to the facts for a moment. They never announced anything to the church about what this person reportedly did. So why would somebody even know to step forward? Had they, because they've never been informed. Yeah. So oftentimes we encourage the identity of the, and we say it's a reported offender. It's not, we're, not, we're just saying reported or alleged offender, but to, to, to disclose that, not to hurt that person's reputation, but quite frankly, to maybe empower others within that community who might have, might have been victimized or might know information related to the very disclosures that we're investigating to step forward and provide us with that information. Yeah. If we keep all the identities quiet, then we're really hamstringing the investigation. And, and at least with regard to the investigations Grace conducts, if we can't do the investigation the way it needs to be done, we won't do it because then it just looks like a sham and a cover and we will never allow ourselves to be exploited by an organization who says, oh, we brought in Grace and they did this work, well, but but didn't provide us with the information that we needed to do the work. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, so a couple, this is one thing I was thinking, and also Ryan Ashton asked this, so be prepared for All a right, difficult Ryan. question. So he said, are you aware of any policy or code of conduct or ethical guidelines for journalists when dealing with survivors or covering abuse stories? And what journalists do this well, in your opinion, he says. So who's the, who's the, who is the Megan Tui, Rowan Minfarrow, uh, you know, of the, the Christian uh, religion journalist? Or, well, or most of the time, world? most of the time, if I connect a client with a journalist, it's not a Christian publication. Okay. Just because I think the that there's some exceptions to that, but for the most part, I don't just because the Christian uh, journalistic pond is small um, and there's too many conflicts. The case, would you be more comfortable with a religion journalist that does not work for a religious publication? Yes. So like a yeah. Robert Downen, he doesn't work for like a religious media company. Yeah, Robert Downen, uh, Elizabeth Diaz, uh, Ruth Graham, uh, folks like that. Uh, uh, Rich McHugh, who has become a, a good friend of mine, who's a journalist who was the cohort of, of Ronan Farrow. He was the producer from his show. I don't like naming because there's so many. I think there's so many really legit journalists. Yeah. Those are just yeah. people I've come to really respect because they're, they're thorough. And I don't know about code of conduct. They probably, I know that they, you know, in most cases, journalists have policies and procedures within their own publications about not naming victims of sexual abuse unless the unless it's already been that person's identity has already been publicized then they have a choice if they want to or not or if that person wants their you know wants their their name uh, there's also you know requirements i'm learning you know with journalists you can't 
you can't just take somebody who says, hey, this happened to me, and they post it on the front of the New York Times. I mean, there takes a lot of investigative journalism. Catherine Joyce is a, is a, a really thorough journalist who has done some really remarkable work, not as much on abuse-related stuff, but on, you know, sort of the evangelical adoption movement and things mm -hmm. like that, and quiverful movement. And she's incredibly thorough. I mean, like, and, and so that's why when people say, oh, they're just, you know, these, these secular journalists are coming out to attack the, the church. That's honestly, in all the years I've been doing this, I've never found that to be true. And I've found that more often than not, not all of them, they are very thorough and conscientious with the work they do. And there are some within the Christian world too. I mean, I, I think of religion news service. They have some really great journalists. Yeah. Um, it just gets tough when you're dealing with publications like Christianity Today and you're, you know, when they're writing about, and this all came out, so it's no secret, but when they're writing about Robbie Zacharias, when Robbie Zacharias was the 600 pound gorilla within that event, part of the evangelical pond, like how do yeah. they, how do you not have a conflict in writing for that. And we saw what happened. There was. Yeah. So, um, but my, my overall experience with, with journalists who have written about these subjects has been, has actually been pretty positive. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful for that. I, I had talked to Bob Smitiana, um, you know, personally, and then also just to talk to him about the idea of reporting. And he said he's learned a ton throughout the years of ways not to re-traumatize, um, you know, if there's already public thing, statements about a story to not make people tell it again, you know, and just understanding if people are in a place where they actually are able to tell the story. It is, it is traumatizing. So I think people that have been around and writing for a while understand if a story is ready to go for a big, you know, national yeah. audience where yeah. not every, and even if something that happened to you is very legitimately wrong. It's not the right story for every person. I also think that anytime I connect somebody with a journalist, the first thing we do is have an off record initial conversation because I want to be able to debrief with the client and go, do you, what was your thoughts about this person? Do you feel safe with this person? Do you feel Cause if you don't, cause I've already told the journalist this, if you don't we'll find somebody else. And I have found nine out of 10 times, the, the quote unquote secular journalist has a much greater understanding, empathy, and compassion for my clients than their own pastor did. Hmm. Let me ask you one last question, okay. you know, to wrap this up, what are some specific things that help you remain hopeful and resist cynicism? <laughs> well, I, I can be cynical and I, I like to think that most of it's a fairly healthy degree of cynicism, uh, probably not every day. Um, I, I think that that's a good question. I probably the biggest thing that gives me hope are the incredible clients and survivors that I am privileged to meet and work with and walk alongside. I have found the reflection and I don't say this lightly. I found the reflection of Jesus more in their faces and in their lives. And I have found inside the churches that I've attended most of my life. That gives me hope. It tells me that maybe the church looks a little different down the road, but that's okay. And that, that's just a huge thing for, I also think the younger generation, I, I, even in a bigger, in a, in a bigger perspective, the younger generation gives me hope the generation of my kids. And they're, you know, a lot of people give, 
you know, Generation X and the millennials and all those different letters a hard time. I actually love, love those generations. And because they're just so oftentimes it's what you see is what you get. They, they see through all the BS. They call it for what it is. Now they need to probably watch a little less TikTok. But, you know, I, I just that gives me some hope. Maybe that the church will look much different down the road, but maybe it will reflect Jesus in a more beautiful way. So, yeah, I think that and then, you know, I just I, I say this all the time and I don't say this lightly either that that my my wife and my three daughters uh, are the most visible, beautiful reflection of, of Jesus in my life and are the constant reminder that God hasn't given up. Yeah, those are some, some of the things. But, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I love the work I do is that, man, I, I, I get to meet and walk alongside some genuine heroes. And most of them will never get attention. Most of them will never get an interview. Most of them will never, you know, th that's they're heroes because they've inspired me in ways that I, you know, I can't even begin to explain with the time we have left. And so uh, that's where, that's where my hope lies. And, and I'm, I'm glad for it. Uh, cause, so, cause I have maybe the biggest thing I've learned in this work. Well, one of the biggest things I've learned in this work, having grown up as an, you know, conservative evangelical in the conservative evangelical world, uh, is that I'm learning that the most beautiful expression and presence of Jesus that I've in, encountered oftentimes are in the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely of places. Mm. And that's what gives me hope. Yeah. I appreciate that. Maybe yeah. next time we talk, Boz, you can, you can clear up for us the, who, who your grandpa voted for <laughs> and uh, what it's like to be a movie star on a docuseries. I, I Boz gave the typical lawyer response of no comment to the first question and to the second, in which I teased about his role in a recent docuseries, he just laughed. I would say, on a, on a side note, I will say this with my two seconds left, because um, we didn't get into this. I, I do think if, if, you, if you're somebody who has been victimized, know that even if there is not a criminal potentially criminal charges. Think through when you get to that point of the possibility of speaking with a lawyer about what options you have to hold those, not only the individual, but the institutions accountable for what happened to you. Because I have found with a lot of my clients that even though they, some of them may not, you know, get a big wad of cash, which is really never the, the ultimate objective, the process empowers them. And yeah. it, it really contributes to their healing. And um, and so I, I just think that that's something that a lot of people don't think about and or aren't even at a point where they can think about, which is completely okay. But um, holding others accountable, even legally, can be very therapeutic in and of yeah. itself. Um, and it can help others to come after you. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with who Billy Graham voted for. But... Um, but, well, uh, I know there's I, a family controversy over it. I saw it you know, play out on social media. On, on our side of the family, it's not controversial. We know. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, I am so grateful. We could do this again sometime. Probably have like 50 more questions. Well, I, I appreciate you inviting me. And I just want to thank you for this podcast. I think it's, um, you know, there are lots of podcasts out there, but but so much of the material you cover and the guests you speak with, I think is are, is so relevant to what so many people are challenged with and, and some of them battling. So you just bringing it all out in the open and talking about it and giving that 
freedom to talk about it is so important. So don't stop. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Boz as much as I did. I have enough questions left over that I'm sure I will have him back on the show again. I'd love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I am on Tangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.